This week, I talk haunted asylums with ghost stories, dark history, and a little personal opinion too, as you might expect. The following was written by Marissa M. Cascino of The Washingtonian on her experience staying overnight in the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in Weston, West Virginia. She says, I rolled into Weston as the sun began to sink, making the lush Appalachian hills appear to glow. A century and a half ago, this area's beauty appealed to social reformers convinced of the healing powers of fresh air mixed with rural landscapes. But even against the backdrop, the Gothic-style mental hospital they built here looks like a figment of Stephen King's imagination. The Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, now widely considered one of the most haunted destinations in America, operated from 1864 to 1994. Although it was designed for only 250 patients, about 2,400 were crammed in, which gave me pause when I arrived for my overnight ghost hunt. Was I exploiting their suffering, or was I validating it? Now, I expected to be joined by hardcore paranormal investigators, weighed down with camera gear and recorders, and there were some, but there was also a preppy older couple, a mom chaperoning tweens, and a grandma from Indiana named Julia, along with her skeptical son-in-law. We broke into smaller groups, spending two hours each on the asylum's four floors before rotating. Our guide told us about some of the hospital's better-known spirits, including a little girl named Lily who was born in the asylum, along with a man named Jesse who died of a heart attack in a bathtub, Civil War soldiers, and a patient who was brutally murdered by his roommates. On each floor, she gave us the lay of the land before turning us loose to explore. The hospital is vast, so vast that it was easy to end up alone. Julie and I set up in a room, allegedly haunted by a spirit named Jim James. We placed a mag light on the floor and asked Jim to turn it on. Now the light was Julia's, but I had inspected it, and it seemed totally ordinary. A few beats passed, and then it came on all by itself. I offered Jim a cigarette to turn it back off, and guess what? It went dark. Now I don't smoke. But our guide gave me a couple cigarettes because she said some of the spirits like them. We tried the flashlight trick again and again, in a room where Lily supposedly plays, in a pitch black corridor reserved for women, and a lobotomy recovery area, but didn't have any luck. By 4.30am I was ready to go. As I drove away I thought about whether I actually believed. I've always been fascinated by ghosts, but am I convinced they exist? Honestly, no. Maybe Jim James did turn on that flashlight, or maybe there's some mechanical explanation. I just don't know, and what's more exciting than the unknowable? I'll tell you, Marissa, what's more exciting than the unknowable is actually believing and having experience while, while you have that belief. Now, I'm not talking about, of course, just assuming that it's a true ghostly experience, but that when something happens to you, to immediately not dismiss it as something else, to to look into that. Now, for this experience, it was very subtle. So to be honest, I don't. It doesn't really stick in my mind. 
I know soon after that I'm done recording this podcast that I'm probably going to forget it and not think about it again. But when I hear the experience, I'm like, okay. I mean, it's interesting in the way that the timing was right on. I mean, she was saying the words to the spirit, Jim James, that, you know, make something happen. Turn it on, turn it off. And the timing was perfect. So to say that it's mechanical and the fact that as well, when you move room to room afterwards and it doesn't repeat, you know, showing that the the flashlight itself was, was mechanically sound, then in that case, I say that this is a legit experience. But I mean, if you're skeptical towards the idea of ghosts, of course, the first thing in your mind is it's mechanical and I don't know. I just don't know. And that's what Marissa says. So I respect that. Just leave it alone. She seems still excited. I mean, even the most skeptical people seem to enjoy a ghost story or two. And this one being a, a simple experience, I, I can see why it wouldn't convert her. So there's, in a very quick way, both sides of the spectrum on what I thought of that story there from Marissa. Uh, you tell me what you think if, if I'm on the right pathway here. Uh, Daniel at ghostwalks.com or ghostguidedaniel on Facebook. But getting around the general idea of the insane asylum, or as they call it, the lunatic asylum, words that you probably wouldn't hear as much today unless they were used in an insult or two. But back then, I mean, the reason that some people ended up in these places was kind of insulting. It's amazing that during that time, many of the afflictions that people would have that uh, got them placed in these asylums, which in most cases, not all, were basically just prisons. And I'm not even talking about like a nice prison, (laughs) if there is any. I am talking about something that is even worse in a way to be placed, crammed into a building like this. And I'll come back to that in a moment and being in a way experimented on. So I don't know if there was any nefarious uh, conspiracies behind people being put into these asylums? I don't think so. And if in, in any way, I'll come to that in a bit, is I kind of think they had the best intentions of mind. They've just stuck in a time, in a time in our history where uh, the medical sciences weren't really all that great, that, you know, it was okay, but not amazing. But then again, you also have to look at the reason that some people end up in these asylums. And if you read that list, which, by the way, is a very long list, I contemplated on whether I was going to read the entire thing to you. But then I realized, okay, I'll just take too much. So what I did is I I took my favorites out. So I read through it all for you, and I took the ones that I liked the most. So here are some of the reasons why you might get committed to an insane asylum. You had a death of a son in war, which I understand that. Oh, and by the way, this is also uh, very much against women. (laughs) I I read some of the other. It's like, okay, I mean, it's not very pro-woman back then, so I get that. Uh, So one of the other reasons a woman might be put in these asylums is because she was deserted by her husband. Another one is uh, bad habits or political excitement. Hold on, just step back from that one for a second. Political asylum. I don't know if you guys have been on Twitter lately, but I have a feeling the asylums would be packed again. Another reason is immoral life. Another one is you feel jealousy. 
Another one is, and I have no idea what this one is, uh, what it means is masturbation for 30 years. 30, why 30 years? I guess maybe when you're 30 years old, I don't know. Uh, also, if you're a bad company to others, sorry, introverts, <laughs> you're, you're going to be in an asylum. Uh, parents, your parents were cousins. Uh, you, uh, if if uh, parents shoot their daughter, they could end up in here. And finally, save the best for last, female disease, or what they called menstrual derangement. That was weird, putting people into these places for those reasons. But what's even more weird is the fixes that they applied to these people. Now, of course, there was... Uh, medication. I think today you would have more of that, more medic medical options for pills that you would feed them. I'm not saying that I agree with it. In fact, I am uh, personally skeptical against any um, uh, any medicines that affect the mind, affect the brain, because I don't think we have enough information to be providing these things in the side effects outweigh any risks that you can get from just having the affliction but i'm sure it's helped a lot of people over the years so that's just my own personal opinion but back then you didn't really just have medicine that covered everything and the the type of fixes just borderlined on abuse if not was straight out or or in a way just violence in general and i'm sure you've heard of electroshock therapy uh, there was ones, I, I don't know the official medical term, where they would use water. Kind of like, you know, how waterboarding is torture today. Back then it was somehow a uh, fix. And the one I'm going to focus on for you, in my mind, is the worst one, is the lobotomy. And focus in on just one man. He was a famed American surgeon named Dr. Walter Freeman. He created a special lobotomy. This made him famous, or as some would say, infamous. They called it the ice pick lobotomy. The method did not need drilling. Instead, what they did was enter the skull by use of a long, sharp pick slid through the eye socket. The first ever lobotomy in general in the United States was performed at George Washington University Hospital in the year 1936. The doctors who did this were James Watts and, of course, Walter Freeman. Now, many considered it a huge success until some high-profile problems in the form of the Kennedy family. Dr. Freeman carried out his technique on the wrong patient the sister of American President John F. Kennedy. When Rosemary Kennedy was only 23 years old, her family was worried. She was getting seizures and violent mood swings. They were desperate for a solution, and it was her father who set up the surgery. Freeman chosen as the doctor because of his famous ice pick technique. It failed. Rosemary spent the rest of her life in a hospital, kept secret and only rumor until much later in life. This event may have inspired her sister Eunice as she created the Special Olympics in 1962. Dr. Freeman worked at Trans-Allegheny Asylum. This is the location that was mentioned in the earlier story from Marissa. 
This became his experiment ground. And as one nurse recalls in 1939, it was my second day of work, and I was asked to bring the doctor a male patient. I did not know who the doctor was or why he needed a patient, but I found a good one anyway. This man could dress himself and go to the bathroom alone. Now they say the patient was not able to do or feel anything after the surgery. Freeman performed many lobotomies, including a record week, up to 228 of them. And guess where that was? Trans-Allegheny. Now, um, we look back on this Dr. Freeman today, and we, I'm sure, feel the same way that I feel in the current moment when I... (laughs) when I read these stories, and that uh, is complete disgust on what um, this surgery did to people and how they affected the brain. So I look back on it the same that many others do, which includes the script writers of a TV show called American Horror Story. Now, if you guys watch that, the first season was, in my opinion, the best one after that. It just got very violent and strange. But one of the seasons, I forget which one, I think it was the second maybe, uh, was called Asylum. And there was a doctor who was portrayed in it by a great actor named James Cromwell, uh, you know, the old guy from Babe. And uh, it is said that the doctor that Cromwell played is based on Dr. Walter Freeman. But here's the thing in the in the show, like back then you would have probably saw this guy as a hero, even though he technically wasn't but in the show he was guess what the villain so that makes more sense to me now in the end though i do think that the intentions of doctors and nurses in asylums back then were actually good these places were supposed to help people the only problem was that a lot of this happened during a time of what many called the dark ages of silence And if you have dark ages, obviously they didn't have the same medical expertise, they didn't have the same medication or tools that we'd eventually have, Uh, they didn't have the same knowledge when it came to mental health, so immediately thinking that it could, you know, sum up to a physical affliction, and that's what they attacked. So, I mean, we look back today with shock on what they did and you know, the experiments that they performed on humans. And yes, some of them were nefarious. I mean, there's many stories of conspiracies that have probably been proven up to this day that shows that some of them were nefarious, but not all of them. I mean, a lot of the people who worked in these places were not evil people. And I need that to be said, that they were just hoping to help folks with the limited knowledge that they had at the time. So when you create these locations like Trans-Allegheny, or the one I'm about to talk about in my own hometown, Century Manor, and you look back on that history and you think, okay, well, they did these horrible things, it's good to remember that. It's good to remember history even when it is hard to remember, hard as in it hurts to think that this was done to people. Because by remembering it, you ensure that it never gets repeated. Okay. That was way too serious. For the end of this uh, podcast, I'm sure you're yelling at me right now. Daniel, where the hell are the ghost stories? And I got one for you. So this uh, comes from my own hometown. This is the former asylum in Hamilton. Uh, used to cover an entire 
uh, city block, and it pushed back right, right to the escarpment. So it was a massive area. Uh, the main building, the Barden building, which faced off the escarpment, has long been demolished. That uh, used to be that you, from the downtown core, you could look up and you could even see the building from certain parts. And they would always say jokingly, uh, this is going back to like 1800s uh, Victorian time, that if you um, you should be careful how you act in public because you could end up in what they called the mansion on the hill. And the mansion on the hill was the Barton building. Now, Century Manor, the one that still exists, it's the last piece of the original asylum, uh, is located just off of uh, Fennel Avenue, which is the street behind it, and is um, the location of where the criminally insane were held. So basically the worst of the worst. This is the building that they were kept in, I guess, to keep them away from the main population. Now, ghost stories are hard to get especially when you're talking about long-abandoned buildings such as Century Manor. But for now, we have one, coming from a dedicated security guard. He worked in the 1970s Hamilton Psychiatric Hospital many years ago, which was on the same grounds as Century. A common task at night was regular walks. He'd watch the grounds closely for trespassers wanting to access Century Manor. It was possible for them to get into the old tunnels which was a huge liability. Jeff, not his real name, was taking around through the tunnels late into his shift, voices talking soft, whispering or muffled around the corner. Looking past the wall, Jeff saw a long hallway leading to an old wood door with a brass handle. The voices were coming from the other side. He crept up to the door. He listened, heard women talking back and forth, pressed his ear against the wood but he couldn't make out the words. Trespassers, he thought, must have gotten into the tunnel and walked around and they were now lost. Jeff smiled as a plan snapped into his mind. He'll scare them, just to teach a lesson, of course. This being funny was just a bonus. He swung open the door and saw two women sitting at a table. Their clothes were old-fashioned, like the like original nursing outfits. White coats, shoulder pads leading up to a tight collar. Faces under flat white hats looked up at Jeff, and they smiled. One woman turned to the other and said, See? I told you he would find us. Jeff slammed the door, caught his breath, and a few seconds would pass until he was able to move. He didn't want to, though, but natural curiosity took hold. He slowly opened the door to an empty room. The only exit was the one he stood in now acting as a needed crutch for poor Jeff. That's it, everyone. A little side note, I'll be out in Niagara on Saturday. This is the Saturday this weekend, which is uh, July 24th. I'll be leading the Dark History Tour that night in a later ghost walk. Come on out if you're bored. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you next week.